Glad you're here this morning. We're beginning a brand new series on prayer. I want to remind you, you know, when we come together and we sing like this, we, we sing to God, you realize this is a form of prayer because we, we're really, we're asking that his spirit come and make us alive. These are things we're addressing to God. So we're not just singing truth. We're, we're speaking those truths to God and that's prayer. So in a real sense, We are just kind of continuing a conversation that started long before you entered into this building, which will continue after we're done. I was reading this really is funny quote, but somebody said, books on prayer are written by introverts that are purchased by extroverts who read them and feel guilty. And, you know, just thinking about all the books I've read on prayer over the years, I think, you know, it's probably the most common denominator right there. So to put your mind at ease, that's not what this series is about. Uh, I'm not going to beat you up for, for not praying more. In fact, I don't believe in guilt. I don't believe that making people feel bad is the best way to get them to do good. Instead, I want to encourage you. More importantly, I want to create an appetite for prayer. I want to take the mystery out of it. I want to show you prayer that makes sense. I want to show you how to do it God's way. And the way I'm going to do that is by showing you how. Showing you how the people of God prayed in the Bible. You see, the Bible really is our best instructor on how to pray. And that's where I'd like to begin with the very first book on prayer. So the Psalms are the original book of prayer. They're a collection of conversations that the people of God had with God about anything and everything they were thinking or feeling. So in that sense, the Psalms are the speech teacher for the community of faith. So if you open your Bible, I mean literally right to the middle, most of you land right in the Psalms. The Psalms are at the center, at the heart of our scripture. I believe that the Psalms is one of the most important books in the Old Testament. I'll tell you why. Because it's quoted more in the New Testament than any other book. Just as a simple fact, get this, at the middle of the Bible we find the Psalms, and in the 260 chapters of the New Testament, the Psalms are quoted over 400 times. Which means you really can't look at a page in the New Testament without seeing a reference to the Psalms. And more importantly for our purposes, this is really a book of prayer. Take, for example, the Old Testament prophet of Jonah. Remember how Jonah is rebellious. He runs from the call of God. A great fish swallows him. In the belly of the fish, he prays. And we have that prayer recorded in the Bible. As best I can tell from studying it and reading myself, Jonah doesn't utter a single original thought. Instead, his prayer is literally, in eight verses long, about a dozen references from the book of Psalms. Here's all the references. I mean, he just continually, he's quoting psalm after psalm. In the New Testament, when Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit floods the church. Peter preaches his first sermon based on two texts, Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. 3,000 people come to the Lord that day. 3,000 people are added to the church in a single day. The very next verse says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Notice it doesn't say they devoted themselves to prayer. It says they devoted themselves to the prayers. Now what you need to remember, Luke is writing this gospel to us all, of course, and he's talking about the book of Acts and Luke together here, but he's referring to the Psalms because that was the original book of prayer for the people of God. I mean, these are Jewish people. 
And for a thousand years, they've been praying the Psalms. They've been taught that this is the way you connect with God. In fact, I love the way Eugene Peterson said it. He said the Psalms are God's gift to those who want to learn how to pray. So there's plenty of examples in the Bible of people praying the Psalms. But probably the most compelling one is this next one, that Jesus himself was saturated with the Psalms. It's been said that Jesus is the most psalm-soaked person who ever lived. He quotes more from that book than any other book in the Old Testament. Let's just look at the final week of his life leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, the Jewish crowd gathered around began to cry out from Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A few days later, they have the Passover meal, and the Bible says, and when they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, most all scholars agree that the hymn that Matthew's referring to would have been the customary hymn that all Jewish people sing during Passover, which is Psalms 113 through 118, also called the Hallel. Jesus then leads his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays. Remember what he prays? My Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. The cup is a reference to Psalm 75 because the cup represents, it's a metaphor for God's judgment against sin. Judas shows up. He betrays Jesus. Again, Psalm 41.9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. When Jesus is crucified, he cries out to God. He prays. It's an agonizing prayer. Remember what he prays? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. He's enduring unimaginable pain. And the prayer that comes to him is a prayer of the Psalms. With his dying breath, one of the seven statements of the cross, the last words that Jesus speaks, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's a quotation from Psalm 31, verse 5. I'm telling you that Jesus in his darkest hours was sustained and strengthened through the book of Psalms. And you should know, I mean, we, we think, why is that? I mean, why does he go to the book of Psalms? Because you need to know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not the only books in the Bible that tell the story of Jesus. So does the book of Psalms. After his resurrection, this is what he said to his disciples. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophet and the Psalms must be fulfilled. If you want to see Jesus better, then you need to get acquainted with the Psalms. Here's something really else important. Very important about the original book of prayer, and that is the Psalms teach us to pray what's in us. That's not an original thought of mine. That's actually an observation that C.S. Lewis once made. He said we must lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. A lot of people pray what they think God wants to hear as opposed to what's really going on in their hearts. And that will stifle prayer. It will kill prayer. It will kill the vitality of prayer in your life to not pray what's genuinely on your heart. Listen to Philip Yancey because this is so powerful. He said the 150 Psalms present a mosaic of spiritual therapy and process. Doubt, paranoia, giddiness, meanness, delight, hatred, joy, praise, vengefulness, betrayal. You can find it all in the Psalms. From Psalms, I have learned that I can rightfully bring to God whatever I feel to him. That's what the Psalms do. The Psalms invite us to bring our authentic self, what we're really dealing with, what we're really feeling in the moment, what our thoughts happen to be, to bring all of that to God. Now, one of the reasons we don't do that is because we assume that God's not a loving parent like we are. 
Jesus one time told a story because that's been a common belief of people for generations that God is not really as good as he makes himself out to be. So Jesus tells this story and he says this, if your little boy asks you for a serving of fish, do you scare him with a live snake on his plate? If your little girl asks for an egg, do you trick her with a spider? As bad as you are, you wouldn't think of such a thing. You're at least decent to your own children. And don't you think the Father who conceived you in love will give you the Holy Spirit when you ask him. God is the Father who made you, loves you, sustains you. God has good things in store for you. So we learn to pray what's in us, not what ought to be in us. To take this thought a little further, let's talk about getting honest with God. Today, a lot of us are very adept at camouflaging our reality. We found ways to hide our little uglies from one another. And it's called Photoshop. And if you don't have Photoshop, the app is called Facetune. And we won't ask you to confess this morning how many of you have it on your phone. But with these programs, you can actually doctor photographs after you take them. You can make your zits magically disappear, wrinkles go completely away, change your teeth from coffee stain to lily white. You can make bulges at the waistline vanish. You can even give yourself a set of abs. In short, you can present the best possible version of yourself that none of your friends can recognize. So it seems... It seems that a lot of people are doing that these days, and people on Instagram are infamous for doing it, and so people are calling others out for doctoring their photos. So I thought I'd give you a few examples of how this is happening. I mean, people, this is, every time on the left is the reality, the right is the doctored image. You can see, you can change a lot of things that you don't like about yourself, make you appear like a model, make your zits vanish, I mean, completely. And even, you know, I mean, who would recognize that's the same person, right? Even Bieber, I mean, he gets into it, he takes care of his complexion. Yoda, I mean, <laughs> Yoda's being a part of it. And even here myself, I mean, if, if I didn't put a little stage makeup on, you just wouldn't even recognize me. So consider this an intervention this morning. Um, some of you, because I'm your friend on Facebook and Instagram, I just got to tell you, if you ever turn up missing, we're not going to be able to find you, okay? We're just, those photos don't look like you. So I'm really scared for your future. Please stop. Okay, so uh, <laughs> the reason I even bring that up is because we do this with God. We, we camouflage our reality. We, we choose to, to hide the ugly parts we, we think that if I push it down and I ignored it and I conceal my little uglies, that that's what I'm supposed to do. We sanitize our prayers. We hide what's really going on inside, which brings me to a very important principle. God can do amazing things with your reality and nothing with your pretending. You know, when I first became a Christian, prayer was wonderful to me. I loved to do it. I did it all the time. Uh, it was very real from the heart. Sometimes confusing, but never anything but completely genuine. And then something happened. I started hanging around with other Christians. And when I started hanging around with other Christians, I started listening to them pray. And I figured, you know, the way they're praying must be the way you're supposed to pray. So I started picking up phrases that weren't me, but, you know, I thought you were supposed to say. You know, like we're always supposed to say, thank you, God, for this food to the nourishment of my body. I thought that I was supposed to, the nourishment of my body. I'm supposed to say that every time. Or I'm supposed to thank God for the food, the fun, the fellowship, the three F's. I'm supposed to do that every time. Or I'm supposed to 
Ask God to put a hedge of protection around my friends. Now, I don't know why shrubbery protects people, but I'm supposed to be praying for this hedge of protection. The thing is this. There's nothing wrong with those phrases per se, but they weren't me. And they didn't come from an authentic place. And what I discovered is over time, I began to lose my motivation to pray. What used to be spontaneous and natural and something I looked forward to became dry and inauthentic and something I felt like I was made to do. I no longer hungered to do it on my own. You see, I think the problem today is not that we don't have enough information on prayer. I think we have a lot of information on prayer. It's just a lot of the wrong information. We, we, we get a lot of bad thoughts around prayer, so that's why we want to return to Scripture. So let me remind you what I said at the beginning. God can do wonderful things with your reality and nothing with your pretending. Can we get real for a minute? There are a number of you in this room, you've been a Christian for a long time. You've been in church for a long time. And the honest to God truth is you don't get prayer. You're not drawn to it. You're not in love with it. You really don't even, you feel like many times it's just a canned speech to God. It's hitting the ceiling and bouncing off. And you've pretended for so long that now you don't know how to come clean with, I don't really know how to pray. So here's what I want to do. I want to click. Declare this auditorium for the next four weeks a judgment-free zone. It's okay to be a beginner, even if you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time. In fact, if it'll help you, I'll take all the blame for it, okay? I'll say the reason you don't know is because I haven't done a good job of teaching you. Is that fair? I haven't done a good job of teaching you, but we're going to remedy that. Over the next month, I want to teach you about authentically praying. So feel free to be a beginner. doesn't matter if you've been walking with Jesus for 20 years. Feel free to be a beginner and to relearn the things you should have learned a long time ago. So why I want to shift gears and talk about the uglies we hide from God. A little earlier I said that the book of Psalms is a collection of conversations that the people of God had with God who were unafraid to share what they were really thinking or feeling. The Psalms really encourage our total honesty with God. So let me give you some examples of things we hide that are not hidden in the Psalms. Questioning. Questioning is never hidden in the Psalms. Here's an example from Psalm 94. Rise up, O judge of the earth, pay back to the proud what they deserve. How long will the wicked, O Lord, how long will the wicked be jubilant? Now this is not something most Christians pray, but most Christians do feel it. And that is we look around at this world and we think, God, why do the wicked prosper? Why is it that the salesman that lies, cheats, steals, always does everybody dirty, why do they end up number one all the time? Why is it that the wrong people get in power and are abusive? Why, why do these things happen, God? Why does evil prevail? That's the question. And, you know, a lot of us think, well, I can't ask that kind of question. It's not okay. But here it is right in the Bible as words for us to pray. Now, some of you in this room, you might have such perfect faith that you never doubt and you never question. But the rest of us, we have some troubling questions from time to time. So as I see it, there are three responses to evil in the world. One, we can pretend like it doesn't bother us at all. Or two, we can get angry with God and decide never to talk to him again. Or three, we can tell God how we really feel. That's why I love the Psalms, because they give us permission to question God. Now, Psalm 94 doesn't say straighten up, pretend not to be angry, don't feel those things that good Christians aren't supposed to feel. It just gives us permission to call it like we see it and as we feel it and as we're thinking about it. Psalm 94 also doesn't fix the problem, does it? Bad people don't automatically get their just desserts. But what it does is it helps me to be authentically who I am with God, and it puts the problem into his hands. 
Another ugly we hide from God is complaining. Psalm 44 is a complaint from the Israelites during a time when an enemy army had occupied their cities. It says, but now you've rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gained nothing from the sale. Awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? Can you imagine somebody telling God to wake up? But here it is. Here's the deal. Most of the Psalms, when you read them, are Psalms of complaint. The Israelites learned a long time ago, God accepts this from us. So when you feel like God has left you alone, when you feel like you're abandoned, when you feel like you don't know right side from downside, you complain about that. Now, for some of you, this is really good news because you like to complain. Or else you're married to somebody who likes to complain. And I'm here to tell you, you've already got one form of prayer down cold, okay? You, you know how to complain, so you know how to pray. You just need to learn to start directing that to God. In the years I have been a Christ follower, I've known many Jewish people. I've had many Jewish friends. And one of the things I've discovered is Jewish people tend to be much more honest in their prayers. And they can tend to complain more in their prayers. As an example, I heard about this Jewish grandfather take, took his three grandkids to the beach and they're all playing in the sand when this big wave comes in, snatches the little one, pulls it out to sea. Grandfather immediately panics. He prays, dear God, save my grandson, bring him back to me alive. Next big wave deposits the grandson right at his feet. He bows down, he picks up the kid, gives him a big hug, looks up to the sky and said, he had a hat. So <laughs> the prayer of complaint. Now, some of you have stopped praying simply because your prayers were way too polite, way too nice, and not connected in any way to what you were really feeling inside. You never told God what you were really thinking, what you were really feeling, as if God didn't know, right? What I've learned is when I put it all out there, God helps me sort through the messiness. He never holds that against me. Bottom line, I'm telling you this, complain more. Stop complaining to other people. Start complaining to God. When you complain to other people, any of us, when we do this, we're commiserating. We want people to join us in our little misery. We want to try to coalition build stuff like that. That's not helpful. They are not the answer to your problem. God's the answer to your problem. Complain to God. I like what Richard Foster said. He said, the prayer of complaint has been largely lost in our modern sanitized religion, but the Bible abounds with it. I think this is why David said what God really desires most from us is honesty from the heart. Yes, utter sincerity and truthfulness. Could it be that God actually likes people who fight? That instead of being compliant all the time, that God is okay when we complain? Let me ask you a question. You got a lot of people in here. You love your Bible. You read your Bible a lot. Who, according to Scripture, are God's chosen people? Israel, right? The Jews. Israel. You know what the word Israel means, don't you? One who fights or wrestles with God. By the way, that's not a name they chose for themselves. That's a name that God gave to Jacob. It says, you're Israel. He's the father of the 12 tribes. So what that tells me is God has a special place in his heart for people who fight, who wrestle with him, who have to deal with these kind of struggles in their spirit. He wants us to pray in that way. Here's another thing we often hide from God, anger. Do you ever get mad at the people you love? Well, of course you do. We all do. Well, why would God be any different? You say, well, God never does anything to make me mad. Well, I got news for you. Neither does your spouse. 
you make you mad. Your spouse doesn't make you mad. And that's another message for another time. But based on the response, we're needing that one soon. So God doesn't make me mad, but sometimes I get mad at God. In my relationship with my wife, we've been married for 36 years. Sometimes I feel just delight and sometimes I feel fear, sometimes gratitude, sometimes disappointment. Most times I long for her, but other times I'm mad at her. And we just learned a long time ago that if we want to keep things running smoothly between us, we got to talk about what's really going on in our heart. Same thing's true with God. You can't sandbag with God. You can't hold back what you're really feeling because what will happen is this. It'll get a foothold in your life and eventually a stranglehold on your spirit. Now, here's something I don't want you to forget. God would rather you come to him angry than not come to him at all. Listen to this very honest prayer from David. Would you please get out of my face so I can be happy again? <laughs> okay, David, tell us what you're really thinking. You see, in, my, in our mind, as soon as we hear that, and understand, this is the inspired word of God, right? And that was just something David said. As soon as we say that, we think, well, that's an illegal prayer. That's something you should never pray, like, God, I question your existence, or God, I don't know why you're not doing this thing over here, or God, I'm so mad at you right now. But the truth is, you can't get very far in the book of Psalms without encountering some illegal prayers. They're full of people railing against God, asking God hard questions, and out of anguish, wondering where he is. You say, why is this stuff in the Bible it has nothing to do with Christ's love? You know why it's in the Bible? Because it's in us. And when I trust God with my most troubling emotions, I make him Lord, not just of my good parts, but my bad parts too. You see, anything you're withholding from God in relationship, he's not Lord over. So we bring everything. I bring it all to him because he's Lord over all my life. The last ugly I want to draw your attention to is doubt. How many times in the Psalms do you read David saying, where are you, God? Why aren't you doing something? God, you don't even care. He raises questions. He expresses his doubts. Did David have a weak faith? No. You know why he didn't have a weak faith? Because he brought his doubts to God. Let me tell you something from the heart. The person who's trust, who, who has demonstrated real faith, genuine trust in God, is a person that brings their doubts to God as opposed to the person who stands in church, raises their hands, and sings, God, I love you and I trust you. That person who is really authentic with God has demonstrated greater trust in God and who he is than the person who just says the words. You know, one of the things I've learned in my life is we try hard to deal with doubt and we deal with it in the wrong way. We say to ourselves, I won't doubt, I won't doubt, I won't doubt. In life, you move toward what you focus on. That's a negative focus, but it's still a focus. And you say, I won't doubt, I won't doubt, I won't doubt, and your doubts get bigger and a stranglehold on your life. You know, something I learned as a compulsive overeater for all my life, when I start saying, I'm not going to eat that cookie, I'm not going to eat that cookie, I'm not going to eat that cookie, I might as well go ahead and eat my cookie and, and spare myself the guilt, right? Because I'm focused on it. It may be negative, but I'm still focused on it, so I'm moving toward it. You see, we do the opposite of what we should be doing. We try to suppress doubt, and God says to express doubt, express it to him. So if you have doubts, don't try to deny them, disown them, or pretend like they don't exist. That will only increase them. Tell them to God who can help you with it. 
Like Osginus said, the shame is not that people have doubts, but that they're ashamed of them. Here's what I know. Problems left unaddressed in our hearts are parasitic to our faith. Bottom line, God already knows what's in your heart. If you're full of fear and you pretend to be full of faith, you haven't conned God. God sees the fear in your heart. He knows everything about you. So why not tell it to him because that's where you can really honestly deal with it. So that leads me to the final question. With whom will you share your deepest disappointments? Some of you in this room, I know your life story. I know what you've been through. You've been through devastating things. Things that wounded you deeply. Things you should have never had to endure as a person. But you've learned in life that you can't just share that with anybody, right? Because sometimes you go to share your pain with somebody and all they do, all they've got for you are trite answers, unthinking answers. And the reason they do that is they're saying those things to assure themselves not to be present to you. They say these things because they want to assure themselves, I'm not going to have to go through what you're going through. So they got their trite little saying that they're going to put on your life. And you learn really quickly. There's only a few people in this world that you can go to who will really be present to you, that you can really be vulnerable with, that you can open up all of your pain to. And that person has to be someone you wildly and deeply trust. Which is why I say cry out to God, all the messy feelings. That is what we need to do. There's nothing out of bounds when it comes to God. There's nothing excluded. There's nothing inappropriate. Everything belongs in this conversation of the heart. So the Psalms encourage us to share our worst with God. When I was growing up, we were always told, you know, you're supposed to wear your best clothes to church, right? And we even have a phrase, the Sunday best. And I get the idea behind that. The idea was God is deserving of our best, and I totally agree with that. But somewhere in the midst of our finery, we lost the idea that God also wants us to share the worst, that God wants to share the reality of our heart, the real pain that's there, that we can be open, that we can be vulnerable with him. He's a good father. I love the way Billy Graham, he once said this. He said, I used to read five psalms every day. That teaches me how to get along with God. Then I'd read a chapter of Proverbs every day, and that teaches me how to get along with my fellow man. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to get a modern translation of the Bible, like the Message or the New Living Translation, and I want you to read five psalms a day as a prayer. If you do that, you'll read through the entire book of Psalms in one month. If you don't want to do five psalms a day, just do a psalm a day, because what you're going to learn so much about the prayer, about the the, the geography of the heart, if you will, and what we can honestly share with God. So I'm going to share with you a true story as we wrap up that I think it kind of brings it all together. I'm coming up in just a couple of weeks on a significant anniversary for me. August 7th is the one-year anniversary since I had open-heart surgery, quadruple bypass. Uh, That was on August 7th. And I can tell you what's weird about having that level of work done on your heart is afterwards, every skip of your heart, every time it races, any time it does something out of the ordinary... Man, do you notice. You really do. And those episodes, big and small, almost always trigger fear. So about three months after my surgery, I was kind of experiencing a lot of anxiety around these episodes because I didn't know when they would happen. I didn't know what they would mean. And it just felt so different than anything I'd ever experienced before. And I saw that Big Baylor, this is the Baylor Hospital that's downtown Dallas or close to downtown, uh, they were doing a seminar for people who'd had heart surgery and about 
uh, the effects of that, you know. So I thought, well, you know, this is it. This is my answer to prayer. I need to go down there and sit in on this seminar. And honestly, most of the things that they were saying I was already knew, and it really wasn't what I thought it was going to be. But it was being led by a cardiac nurse. And I thought, well, this is a good time to kind of get my question out. So I, I raised my hand and I said, listen, I, I said, this is, this is all good stuff, but, but I have this question because I just get triggered in my fear a lot when my heart does anything unusual. I, I just don't even know what to do with that. It just creates a lot of anxiety. And the moment I said that, everybody in the room decided they needed to fix me, okay? And so people, one guy said, well, you know what? Everybody just needs to be ready to die. You're not assured of it tomorrow anyway. You could die at any moment. Gee, thanks, you know. <laughs> Another person said, well, I'm a Christian. I just pray. You need to pray more to Jesus. <laughs> then a third person said, you need to have more faith because people of faith don't struggle with these issues. So before I said something very unpreacherly-like, <laughs> I said, listen, I'm a pastor I have faith. I love Jesus. I pray every day. I know I could die at any moment. I do something probably most of you don't do. I got a coin in my pocket that says remember death. I keep that in my pocket. Remember, I could leave this life at any moment. You're not being helpful. <laughs> and the room got real quiet, you know. And the cardiac nurse really didn't know what to say to me. She'd not evidently ever been asked a question like that before. And we just kind of moved on, and I just thought, okay, what a colossal waste of my time. <laughs> and about 10, 15 minutes later, this elderly lady, she was sitting three rows behind me on the end of the aisle. She said, and this was unrelated to what I said. I mean, she wasn't thinking about my question or anything like that. She said, after my surgery, every little thing that happened caused me anxiety because my heart had failed me once. And now I didn't trust my heart. I thought, that's it. That's exactly it. That's my problem. And all of a sudden, you know what? I didn't feel weird. I didn't feel out of place. I didn't feel out of the ordinary. All of a sudden, this nebulous cloud of anxiety that had been hanging over my life for three months, I didn't trust my heart. That was the name of my problem. It gave me a handle on my problem, and I, I knew what I needed to do with it. And yeah, the, the, the palpitations didn't go away. And I mean, they're gone now. I don't, I don't have those issues anymore. But in the immediate aftermath of the surgery, it was just happening a lot and didn't know what to do with it. But I, I can't even begin to tell you how much assurance I got from somebody else having the same experience and giving words to my pain. And I'm here to tell you that's exactly what the Psalms do. A lot of times we do get knocked off our game in life, right? I mean, the props get knocked out. We get news that we weren't expecting. Something happens in a relationship. Something tanks. And all of a sudden, we're just kind of in this haze, and we're not knowing where to turn. The Psalms, because they cover all the geography of the heart, when you read them, you think, that's it. That's exactly what I'm dealing with. That's my struggle. And now all of a sudden, I know what specifically I need from God, what I need to yield to him. I'm telling you, it's good to pray what's in you. You don't have to pray what ought to be in you. Pray what's in you. Pray it to the one who knows you better than anybody else. 
Pray to the one who loves you and has good things in store for your life. Pray to the one who can resolve those things in your life. And if they're not resolved, you'll know you're not walking alone. You'll always walk with him. So as we're wrapping up, I'm going to ask that our chaplains be available after this service. They'll be down front. Maybe specifically there's something you need prayer for. And I would love for them to be able to pray with you. But we're also going to kind of pray, sing, pray our closing. And it's a song called Jesus is Better. Because it just reminds us again, orients us at the end of this service to God, who he is, what he wants to do for us. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you. I thank you for your great love for us. I thank you that we have the original book of prayer in our Bibles at the very heart of Scripture that tell us to be real with you, that our anxiety, our anger, our questions, our disappointment, our joy and our happiness, our giddiness and our delight, all of those things belong in this conversation of the heart. Everything belongs with you. Everything is accepted by you. You're we are loved by you, and you're loved by us. So God, give us that freedom to be who we genuinely are. Give us that freedom to expose our heart to you, to let you do in our life what needs to be done. Help us to know, God, that when we enter into the prayer of the heart, that we're not alone, that there are many other people who've walked this journey, that we're not weird, that we're not out of place, that you long to meet us where we are with exactly what we need. In Jesus' name, amen.